Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream, 144th episode Q&A. That was all technically true. Um, here we are. Here we are. Uh, was I, do you think I was going to call you out on things not being technically If I had said it was the 144th Q&A, that wouldn't be true. It's the episode 144 Q&A. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> That is right. Um, all right, let's just 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 launch into the jump cues. right in. Yeah, jump right in. Okay, yep. we have um, every week we invite the people on our Discord server to vote on a question they would most like us to answer. Uh, this week's question <clears throat> reminds me very much of the question that they had us answer two weeks ago, and I I feel like we kind of got into the answer to this, but I'm going to I'm going to remind us of what we answered two weeks ago and then read this week's question. Okay. Uh, so two weeks ago. The question from the Discord server was, what standard do you use to classify a species as invasive? If the goal is to maintain the status quo of an ecosystem in all places on Earth, isn't that the death of evolution? And this one, this week, we are asked, why is an invasive species considered to have a negative effect on an ecosystem? What is the difference if a plant spore rides a piece of driftwood and takes over a new ecosystem, or it rides a cargo ship? Yeah. All right. Um, let's put it this way. There is nothing absolutely law-like about this. It is an average effect question, but the average effect is so decidedly negative that it leaves little doubt. So let me give you an example, a counterexample to the principle that an invasive species is inherently bad. You can have, so there's a principle, island biogeography, that says that the diversity of species on an island is predictable based on two parameters. One of them is the distance from the mainland, and the other is the size of the island. Tiny islands maintain small populations which are prone to go extinct, and distant islands are unlikely to collect mainland species. What that means is that islands are often depauperate from the point of view of diversity. And let's say, okay, here's a good example. The island where Heather did her dissertation research is a little island called Nosy Mangabe. Nosy means island in Malagasy. So the Mangabe Island. Big blue. Is, big blue island. Despite that it was neither big was, nor blue. It was not big and it wasn't blue. But it was an island. Yes. Although. That's one out of three. Dutch pirate maps from the 17th century, if memory serves, uh, show it as being a peninsula attached to the mainland. So at some point, it was not an island either. Right. Now, the reason I raise it is that it lacked the I.I., which is a tremendously endangered lemurid. I think it's not technically a lemur, but it's in the same it's lemuroid. It's, it's a lemuroid. And it was introduced to the island to protect it. Now, the reason that it's so endangered is that there is mythology about the hazard posed to a population if an I.I. is encountered, which results in I.I.s being killed. Yeah, and there, there are, are no fadis, people. There are fadis about seeing taboos in various of the Malagasy tribes about seeing them and leaving them un, unperturbed. Uh, and so many of the places, they, they've become, as a result, very, very shy, um, but also... Uh, uh, there are not that many of them. Yep. And actually, um, the shyness is interesting. It makes it hard to study how common they are because they disproportionately resist being uh, counted. Yes. For um, good reason. Yeah. Because historically, once counted, then killed. So the little island is used now as an I.I. reserve. There are no people living on it natively. And... Therefore, the species that is jeopardized on the mainland can be introduced to the island. There's no downside to it because the island habitat is a basically a distillate of the mainland diversity that mm -hmm. is just down a few. There's no reason that I.I.s shouldn't be on the island. They just don't happen to yeah. be. And so there are other um, lemur species on the island. There are other actually true lemur species on the island. There's brown lemurs, there's roughed lemurs, uh, there are crowned lemurs. 
lemurs? No, nope. there are no crown lemurs on Nosy Mangabe. Bay. Um, there's definitely ruffed um, and brown. There's mouse lemurs. And there's mouse. Oh, there's, yeah, 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 yeah. There's microcebus. Microcebus? Yeah. No, 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 no. Microcebus is a, is a sea. Mm -hmm. No, it's microcebus. Boy. It seems like a very, that's, that's the wrong, some, someone named that badly. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Someone named that like it was an African monkey. Okay, so there are, there are actually a number of lemur and lemurish species, but the eye-eye being a very distinct, a very unusual looking uh, lemuroid uh, also fills a very distinct niche. It effectively fills the woodpecker niche in a land that has no woodpeckers. And so it's not competing with the other lemurs for fruits or for flying insects particularly. It's basically, tap, it's got an elongate middle finger and it tap, 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 taps looking for, um, for rotting wood. And, and it also has these sort of big bat ears and it also listens. And when it finds a place that appears to be um, rife with um, crawling insects inside, yeah. uh, it'll dig in and, and it pulls them out. And so it's not, it's not directly competing with its other close relatives that already pre-existed it on the island. Yep. But anyway, the point is, um, when you have the situation of a habitat that can support a creature who doesn't happen to be there but would be at home there, invasion means something very different. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if we take Hawaii, Hawaii has unique flora and fauna that my argument in my dissertation was that its biota is terrifically well adapted to dispersal because the nature of the Hawaiian archipelago is that it's so remote that only things that are terrifically good at dispersal could get there and trade-offs being what they are things that are terrifically good at dispersal are much less good at competition and therefore um, it is a very invasible habitat and what happens when uh, a creature invades a habitat um, like Hawaii, is that it drives out native species. And those species don't exist anywhere else for the most part. So the point is, diversity drops. We lose species that exist when invasions happen to some place like Hawaii. But this, this actually is a great example because it gets right to the particular way that the question this week was framed, which is, <clears throat> why does a spore, for instance, a seed or a spore, uh, riding a piece of driftwood to a new land um, less of a problem, for instance, than um, one riding on a cargo ship. And if you have ridden driftwood, uh, you have been exposed to all of the elements, to the salt water, to the, to the everything of the journey. Uh, and you are therefore selected to be very good at dispersing and not very good at competing. And so you are, you are less likely uh, to take over a land with the kind of uh, vigorousness as someone who effectively, yes, had to deal with a time span in a habitat that is presumably not conducive uh, to growth and reproduction. But the hold of a cargo ship has at least the potential to be much more amenable to life uh, than riding a piece of driftwood. And so you can get something arriving via cargo ship um, that isn't necessarily all that great at dispersal and therefore has not yet necessarily uh, endured the costs, the trade-offs of dispersal versus competition. And so it may be much more likely to be able to take off in its new environment um, because it got there effectively by cheating. Yeah. Now this is not well understood ecologically, but I believe what you just said is exactly correct. And so really the question is, is the new arrival disproportionately advantaged in competition and therefore going to drive diversity down? Mm -hmm. When the answer to that is no, then there, you know, I think frankly, lots of islands could be used to preserve species that are in fact endangered by invasives on the mainland. Mm -hmm. And it isn't done as far as I know. Mm -hmm. I mean, the II being a, a rare exception to that. Um, so there are cases in which it could be good, but on average, given the average case of invasion, it is distinctly negative, and the reason that it is unambiguously negative is that it reduces the total number of species available on Earth by taking something like eucalyptus and driving out the native Andean tree species that the eucalyptus competes with. And basically the point mm -hmm. is you didn't add any new species. You just took species that existed in Australia and increased their range, but they weren't threatened to begin with for the most part. Mm -hmm. And you decreased the highly unusual tree 
flora of the Andes, so the Earth got poorer in diversity. Yeah. That's why. It increases homogeneity at a global scale. And so, you know, if what we want, if what we're okay with is a world dominated by a few species of mammals, a few species of birds, a few species of plants, etc., uh, then we can stand back and let our our introductions via means such that the organisms themselves are allowed to effectively cheat to get there to take over. Um, but if we are not actually interested in homogeneity as an endpoint, but we're interested in heterogeneity, in biodiversity, in, and recognize that actually we don't know all of what intact, diverse, regionally distinct ecosystems bring to the planet, then we should do what we can to stop species that are doing just fine over here where they evolved from taking over in places where they didn't. Yeah, and that, that's another really good point is the ease with which something can be introduced and the near impossibility of eliminating it once it has uh, thrived there. You know, there are cases yeah. like a large mammal uh, can be eliminated, you know, can be hunted out intentionally. Yep. Um, but from the point of view of a plant species that is self-seeding and superior in competitive capacity, it's almost impossible to get rid of these things. Yeah. Um, so the point is, even if you couldn't spell out what the harm was, um, the point is this is a one-way ticket. Yeah. Right. No, and that's, I mean, this again, this, this gets back to a lot of our recurring themes. The fact that we don't know what all the benefits of intact, diverse, full of local things ecosystems are does not mean that there aren't benefits and the costs therefore are not entirely known but one of the costs for sure is once done it can't be undone once once they're gone they don't come back <clears throat> and so uh, we we absolutely owe it to ourselves our um, those who will come after us and the planet on which we are completely dependent to not destroy things because we can't come up with a good reason that the what the native things are doing there is actually of some use. That that speaks of a hubris, of an arrogance, again, that you know humans are 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 typically engaging in, in which we think that we currently know everything there is to know. We are like God. We can see everything. We know all of the value of the things that have been evolving here for billions of years. And therefore, we are going to make a choice either through action or in some cases just laziness to let it disappear. Oops, our bad. There is no argument that that should be tolerated. Yeah, and I would also just, I would finish my part by saying this is an invisible crisis because most people look out at a set of plants and they can't distinguish what's an invasive and what isn't. And so yeah, it's yeah. much more missed than it is observed. Yeah. To the extent that you become aware of what exists natively in a habitat and what has invaded the tragedy of, for example, eucalyptus spreading around California and South America um, is, it, it would be very difficult to overestimate it. It's really, it's a transformation of these habitats that have made mm -hmm. the world much more generic and much less interesting. Um, yeah, and I mean, in and the town that we just left, right? You know, and, and we've talked about this before, and I think we talked about it when we were answering the, the first introduced species question. English ivy, which uh, does fine, has competitors that can keep it in check, that cause it not to create a monoculture of its own in its native habitat in England, uh, has run has just wrought havoc on the forests in and around Portland, and it, you know it's it's elsewhere as well. You know we had a little bit of English ivy problem in Olympia, but nothing compared to to what's true in Portland and the the forest that we lived in, the little patch of forest that we were lucky enough to live in in Portland, was encrusted. It took down trees, and if it can take down trees, which it did, uh, and you know, I was, I was out there every week, and, and Brett and the boys were out there uh, a fair bit as well, but just you know, clearing it out, clearing it out, clearing out. It's fast growing, and it takes over, and it's very hard to get rid of. Um, and you, know, you just start by snipping it out around the base of the tree so that at least it can stop profiting by, by using the trees that have already climbed to climb to the light itself. But the understory of the forest where the ivy had not yet been removed was full of ivy. 
and the understory of the forest where the ivy had been removed was full of sword ferns and licorice ferns and huckleberries of two types and salmon berries and salal and Oregon grape and vine maples and madrone, not so much madrone where we were, um, but, you know, alders and, you know, more, on and on and on and on. That's just off the top of my head what are the, like the obvious, really common understory species that just get wiped. And so, of course, the understory species that are not that common um, are even more likely to get wiped because you take out one individual and it's more likely that, you know, next year the pollinator doesn't find two individuals with which to make a seed. Yeah, and harder to quantify, but also the decrease in animal diversity as a result of the invasive plants, you know, the the Pacific Northwest habitats that are invaded by ivy are not great places to watch at least terrestrial wildlife and yep. you're as likely to see rats, you know, yep. Norway rats. Um, another introduced species. Yep. Yeah. So the basic point is there's a cascading set of effects that just yep. make the habitat that much more uh, generic yep. and empty. Yep. All right. First question from darkhorsemissions.com this week is, and I just hit refresh and now it's taking its time. Really? Yeah. So we See? can just play that off. So that's just, there's no questions there at the moment. Well, there are no answers there either though. Yeah, I so shouldn't have hit refresh. I just, should have just read one and then hit refresh. And then hit refresh. And that was, a chance to... that was uh, my bad. Refresh I... messed that up for me earlier. You might want to go to the site again. I don't know what you're seeing. There, there we go. Oh, well, I'm not logged in, but I'll answer one and then I'll log back in. Um, <clears throat> California just made human composting lawful. Next step, Soylent Green much? Oh, Soylent Green, question mark? Much love to you too. Now they got to tell us what version of human composting they're talking about. Yeah, I don't I had not heard this story. Things. The composting of humans and the use of human waste in compost, which is presumably... Well, given that it says next step soylent green, I would suggest... It's the former. It's the former, but let me just do a quick search while you um, discuss the well, vagaries. So what I would say is, look, actually, if done properly, these, you know, we are biological creatures. We rot like any other. Um, yep, it's after after your death, you can be composted. You can be composted. You know, if it's done properly, I don't see any reason uh, for concern. I could see how it could be not done properly. But, um, you know, I, I guess probably the biggest consideration is philosophical, right? Does this, you know, yeah. as with cremation, does it do something to our sense of... Uh, who we are that matters. Um, but from a biological level, there's just nothing special other than the fact that probably because, well, my hypothesis would be because of the danger of cannibalism, uh, human cadavers um, stink specially in order to prevent experimenting with them. Um, so, you know, that's what makes us special as a decaying creature, but mm -hmm. nothing else does. Yeah. So, um, nothing else that I know of. Yeah. Um, nor can I think of any reason that there should be anything else special. Um, you know, insofar as understanding it as a potential step towards Soylent Green, in which um, human flesh was, was itself transformed directly into food. And here we have human flesh being transformed into soil uh, addendums. That is a better word. Amendments. Amendments, yes. Soil amendments, which are then presumably grown into food. Um, I can see that as a potential step towards the terrible thing that would be a soil like green like future. Um, but I guess I can also see cremation and the ways that cremated remains are often disposed of as a step towards human composting. Yeah, I mean, the first of all, I've never seen Soylent Green, but it doesn't make any sense as a strategy for anything, right? The amount... I think of, it's been a long time. 
Um, and I think it wasn't all that, I have seen it, but it's been a long time. I think I saw it in middle school, I guess part of the middle school curriculum <laughs> as, a, as a cautionary tale, I believe. Um, and I think it was um, naive, but I think the idea was there's just, there's just too many people and too little space, and here's a at least partial solution to two of the problems. Yeah, but it's not, that's my point, is the amount of food resource that a person represents compared to the amount of food that a person consumes is so trivial that I, I just don't understand exactly, you know, it's an error term at best. Um, so it's grotesque, it's philosophically awful, but it's not biologically meaningful. Um, and composting, I mean, you know, part of, I mean, part of what we're doing wrong is that, and in fact, if we can go back to what Madagascar reveals about the rest of the world, in Madagascar, there was a tradition amongst uh, the indigenous Malagasy of burying people temporarily in uh, body boxes and then digging them up five years later. Some number of years later, it depended on which of the tribes it was. And uh, effectively talking to the the now bones of the ancestor about what had transpired in between. and Before rewrapping the bones in fresh shrouds and, and putting them in body them. boxes. And then, so, you know, unearthing them every now and again. Now, I think there's a very good argument to be made about why this is actually a very humanizing an important lineage process that to and, the extent... And in fact, actually, Nosy Mangabe, which doesn't have a record of permanent human habitation on it, does have a cemetery in one of the caves. Um, and so it was a place where uh, where people from what is now Maransetra, the nearest town on the mainland, um, would go for their um, annual turning of the bone ceremonies. And so not everyone, not all the ancestors were disinterred every year, but there were annual turning of the bone ceremonies. And I, in fact, was invited to one of them. Uh, and it was quite quite a marvel. Yeah, but keeping the memory of ancestors alive as if the ancestor remains present mm -hmm. actually lengthens the view that people have of their relationships and things like that. So anyway, there's a, there's a lot positive about it. But but the point is, Malagasy people, although Madagascar is extremely poor, have of course modernized along with the rest of the world at a bit of a disadvantage economically, but the point is Malagasy people are now distributed across the island of Madagascar and farther, and the ceremony in which they are buried in the first place is often therefore delayed because people have to get home, right? It's not just a town phenomenon. And so uh, the um, you know formaldehyde is used to preserve the bodies to get them through the funeral, and then I don't know that this is so. I don't. I've never heard of that being an issue oh, among I, those among those people. At least among no, the Betsa, absolutely, at absolutely. least among the Betsamasarika in northeast Madagascar, uh, among those who are uh, still partaking in these ancient ways. You're forgetting. You're forgetting what we learned, which was that there were instances of people having been preserved, buried, they did not rot, and then there was a question about how to remove this now preserved flesh from these bones to get the process to continue. So that apparently does happen. Um, and uh, in any case, my point was going to be, we are naturally recycled by the natural process of burial, even if you are buried somewhere and it's 5,000 years before you're fully reintegrated into the environment, there is some process that does that naturally. What we moderns are doing to the dead is breaking that process, right? Preserving bodies so that they make it to a funeral, but preserving them in a way so that a hundred years later they have not returned to equilibrium with um, the soil around them is us being very short-sighted and so I guess my point is, I formally composting people is a little weird, but it is 
a version of the natural process that happens anyway. And so I don't, you know, I don't really find anything especially disturbing about it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there has been a movement among uh, among some people for a while now to do burials without additional chemicals yep. in wooden boxes and untreated wooden boxes um, so that while it would be a slow process, it is expected to be a process wherein you return to um, becoming the nutrients of the soil in which you were laid to rest. Yep. Uh, and... Uh, you know, apparently what little I learned in my quick Google search is <clears throat> this did get passed, Newsom signed it, uh, but it's not going to go into effect until 2027. So it has plenty of time for people to con continue discussing and considering what it might mean. Now, there is one other nuance to this story. I hope I have this correct. Um, Bill Hamilton was one of the true greats in the field of evolutionary biology who died, unfortunately, he had gone, he was a bit reckless and he had gone to Africa actually looking into the relationship between polio vaccines and AIDS and um, he the story goes that he caught malaria um, and basically died from complications I think made it back to Great Britain yeah but, but barely and yeah. in a coma and uh, anyway he died but he um, he was a a tropical biologist who had a favorite forest, and he also had a a, uh, a a wish that when he died, his body was to be staked out in his favorite forest, and the forest was to do to him what it does to dead mammals, and basically he was to be distributed into this forest by you know beetles and ants and all the other creatures that do that kind of work, um, and I think it could not be arranged. I think the fact is it did not happen. Um, because the legal obstacles to getting it to happen were too many. Yeah, I think that's right. So we now own all three of the volumes of Narrow Roads of Geneland, in which I assume that that final wish, that letter in which he has his final wish, is printed. Uh, but uh, I'm just trying to see if I could come up. It's, it's a beautiful, it's beautifully crafted paragraph or so, in which he describes what will take place. Yeah. Uh, in Was it a neotropical forest or a paleotropical yeah, forest? Neotropical. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, I'm not finding it. Um, at the point that all those books, at the point that our bookcases come in and all of our books are unpacked, we will find those books and I will, maybe we will come back to this. Someday your bookcase will come in. I hope so. All right. Trans activism has begun. So, okay. Trans activism has begun to erase women. Pedo activism will soon erase trans people. I predict that in the coming decades, trans species zoophilia and cyberphilia will erase that. Pedo activism will soon erase trans people. I don't quite get it. This is, from, this is from someone who writes questions weekly, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there's something, yep. something real there, but I don't, I don't see, I don't see it. Well, okay, let's uh, step into a different realm. Okay. There comes a point at which, you know, each generation has its music, and the avant-garde music doesn't sound like music to the elders, but it's very compelling because it breaks certain rules and there, thereby discovers new territory. And then there comes a point at which you realize, oh, the, the mechanism by which music progresses is the breaking of rules that were once held sacred. Mm -hmm. Let's just break all the rules. And then it sucks. Then you yeah. get just noise, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, the same thing happens in painting and you get white on white, which is very beautiful in the same way that a white wall is very beautiful. Which is to say, not at all. But in in its defense, and I yep. don't believe I've seen white on white, but certainly heard about it. I do believe that, and I know this is going to sound stupid to most people, but I do believe it was different shades of white. Maybe so. I think I have seen it. Um, but in any case, some Zach wants to know what some famous uh, look. I'm trying to tell you something painting. about the general process. General process is at some point it occurs to you that all the rules are going to be broken and you fast forward and you do it and you kind of wreck the magic, right? Yep. Likewise, 37 and a half seconds of silence, right? Um, so that was a good one. Yeah, that yeah. is a good one. 
It's not long enough, but... I think it's exactly the right length. Anyway, um, I think the point is this question recognizes a pattern by which, you know, transactivism does traffic in exactly the idea that, well, it was scandalous to be gay, and then we all came to understand that it wasn't scandalous, and so trans is the new thing in that niche. To the degree that it's pushing boundaries of what's morally acceptable, yes. Well, and I, that, I mean, and that, but I don't, but trans isn't replacing women because women weren't morally acceptable, right? Like, I would, I would have said then trans is replacing um, gay people, and, you know, now pedo whatever is going to replace trans. Like, I, I just don't... That's not my point. My point okay. is... I, but I think it might have been the, the point here. My point is the idea that certain things are beyond our comprehension, and therefore they will all be normalized. This is nonsense. There are certain yep. things that must never be normalized. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, pedophilia, pedophilia being yeah. very top of that list. Yep. Right. And so, to the extent that these people are going to go white on white on this and just say, "Look, there is no morality. Um, everything is normal." Blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. Then these are the enemies of of all that we have accomplished. And so, anyway, they are. They are wrong. They are mm -hmm. pushing boundaries that must never be pushed. And um, so, yeah, it will lead where it leads. And eventually it will either lead to our destruction or it will lead to us waking up to what the hell have we participated in yeah. and us undoing it. Yep. Love you all. Do you have any opinions on the copper IUD as birth control? Um. I, it's been a while since I've thought about it. I did think about it, but it's been a while. I think all birth control um, messes with some system that you got to be, you got to understand what, what you're messing with, except for, you know, timing or, or really barrier methods. Um, and, you know, copper is doing something chemically uh, that apparently can cause, you know, one of the effects is it can cause very heavy uh, cramping uh, for, for women with the copper IUD. And so anything that's going to, in some subset of the people who have it, cause reliable bad symptoms, I do wonder what that is. What, what else is going on then? Uh, that said, copper is understood to be relatively inert. Um, it is... An element it is in our diets I think if if you don't aren't one of the people with a very bad reaction it is likely to be a better option than much of what is out there but I would want to look more carefully into it before saying that with any more confidence than that yeah I'd say you know th this raises a whole different point which is we modern folks feel entitled to interrupt uh, the process of producing new humans, we, we feel entitled to break the relationship between sex and reproduction. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I don't want to live in a world where that isn't under some kind of human control, I think, you know, people's sexual impulses just simply producing lots more humans is a recipe for disaster. Um, I think also, uh, you know, rape provides the obvious proof that we have to have uh, controls because you can't put in the hands of a rapist the ability to generate offspring at will. Yep. Um, but anyway, the point is, it is not surprising that every method has negative consequences. The question is, what's least negative? Um, and uh, I don't know, I don't claim to be an expert on copper IUD or anything else, but the point is, at some level, realize that we are um, availing ourselves of technologies <coughs> to disrupt a process as fundamental to what we are as any process, 
and that it's not surprising that it's hard to interrupt it in a low-cost way. Yep, it's not surprising. Among certain academics and political elites is a view that human population should be reduced. How much do you think this plays a role in things like pandemic control, where, yes, they really do want to see people killed? Um, I, I don't know. I don't think I don't think we do know. Yeah, but I, I will I don't say, I, I don't even think. I think it's too generous to imagine that this that there are uh, elites whose position is human population is too high. Um, I think there's a strong argument that human population is too high with mechanisms of consumption that are as destructive as ours. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that that's a non-argument. I think it's a real argument. Mm-hmm. But I think there's another argument that's much more central here, which is that people who are disproportionately powerful, which often generally means wealthy, but people who are disproportionately wealthy and powerful look around at the rest of us and they see riffraff who are degrading their playground. Mm-hmm. And they fantasize, I think, about us not being here and them having all that much more of the glory of the world to themselves and what role that plays in how seriously they take misery and misfortune of humans, I suspect they are far more uh, indifferent than they would be if they didn't secretly think, um, wouldn't this all be great if uh, the people I don't care about uh, were gone? Yeah. No, and that, and you know, people aren't wrong to uh, suspect that in some of the rooms uh, filled with elites, where they think that everyone sounds like them and feels like them, uh, the riffraff are understood to be a problem. Uh, if if you worry that that is what some rooms sound like, you're not wrong, and it's demoralizing and horrifying once you've ever been anywhere near those rooms and you realize, oh my God, this is how some people sound and they're fine with it. Well, you know, this is in part the underpinning of the, you know, in our book where we talk about the various different kinds of frontiers, we talk about three different kinds of frontiers that exist and we argue that there's a fourth that we have to find. Um, But the third frontier is a transfer of resource frontier and the idea comes from the recognition. In fact, I remember the day I learned it. Uh, a very good high school teacher whose name I have forgotten, um, who pointed out that the Black Plague had created excellent times in Europe. It's not mm. that the Black Plague were excellent times, but it was the disappearance of a large number of people who were consuming resources. They were effectively up against carrying capacity, and the uh, reduction in the number of people meant that the wealth that the number of people had access to uh so that was true even this this teacher argued that was true even in an era when labor was really required to pull nutrients from the land yep like i I, that 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 surprises me given that that was before most of the labor-saving devices of modernity existed and you know in order to get in order to farm you need a lot of people who are willing to do the hard work of farming. Right, but it's also true that, you know, you disappear a large or substantial fraction of the population and the number of people you have to feed goes down immediately and mm-hmm. the, you know, metals that already had been surfaced, for example, remains the same. So anyway... The yeah, po- if some of the problem was, okay, we do, you know, we are metalsmiths and we do have shovels and plows and such, but we don't have enough of them, then that would potentially solve that problem. Yeah, but nonetheless, I think that this underlies um, the impulse, for example, to demonize and then genocide people. Mm -hmm. That the whole idea is um, producing real growth is difficult. It's a very haphazard process. You can't guarantee your ability to generate growth through innovation, but Mm -hmm. you can figure out who you can target get rid of them, and then you can take their stuff, and that tastes an awful lot like growth. Yeah, and, it does. Um, so mm-hmm. it's that process that we have to stop because with the power at our disposal, not only does that create human tragedies, but it creates an existential threat to 
through our ability to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it's 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 a it's a very dark viewpoint, but once you see it, it it requires um, that we address it soberly, so that we don't end up targeted by elites who view us as uh, you know uh, I don't know what, what was the Nazi term for pointless consumers or something like that. Um, but anyway, something like that. Next question. I'm a new data science, master's of science student at University of Helsinki, but I'm a Washington native. I want to do a comprehensive stratified risk benefit analysis of COVID vaccines for my thesis. Can it be done given the data? Boy, again, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what all is available. Um, I know that whatever is available, you have to even if there are sufficient data sets available to you to do the kind of analysis you want to do, you of course have to be suspect that of their source and how true they are. I would say two things are true. You can absolutely do the analysis. It will be rendered noisy by the distortions in the data that were introduced there for reasons of profit and who knows what else. That's not, I mean, that's systematic bias. That's not noise. Uh, Yeah, I agree. It is systematic bias. Um, But the point, well, you don't, the problem is it is noise because you don't know um, if the point is risk stratification based on age, you do not know how it differentially impacts the uh, recording of harms between ages. In other words, you could have a system that... Given the particular question he might be addressing with a particular data set that may have may have had bias introduced in a particular direction, his question may result in a noisier analysis um, simply because of the particulars of of the way that the question has been framed. Yeah, or if I can put but, it differently, if if what happened was they systematically undercounted adverse events, but they did not do so differentially by age, then the point is it may be noise rather than uh, systematic bias well, in, in, in that, this analysis. Yeah, if, if that, if you knew enough to know that, then you could say, whatever result I get is conservative is going to be conservative relative to the truth because I because I have established that there was systematic undercounting, and I've established that the systematic undercounting was across the board. It was either randomly or at least haphazardly um, distributed across all of the you know across age say, and I'm looking at age, and therefore um, if I find a pattern, I can assume that the pattern is actually stronger than what I found. Um, but that's a lot of knowing about what's in the data, and I don't think he's going to know. He's, well, he's just going to be able to know what you know. How was it the data? How were the data collected? You know, by whom? Under what circumstances? What are they claiming now? How much of it actually got to him? But the fact is, we have a lot of information on adverse events. We have a lot of information from the VAERS system, from the yellow card system, from the military system. And so I think with time, the picture is getting clearer. Yeah, but knowing a lot, knowing that there have been a lot of adverse events from the various systems that do exist is good. But it's different from saying, I want to do a comprehensive stratified risk-benefit analysis of COVID vaccines for my thesis. The yellow card system, VAERS system, don't allow that. They allow you to say, oh, oh, okay, yeah, there have been some problems. But they don't allow what he is specifically saying he wants to do. No, I disagree with this. You're talking about a thesis-level project. And so it is completely within the realm of such a thesis to analyze and figure out how to weight the various different, which data to analyze, how to weight the different uh, evidence to come up with our best estimate given a very polluted data set. But I don't think, just take VAERS. All we have is here are people who had reported mostly by healthcare workers that they had an adverse event. We don't know what the population that that was pulled from is. 
So you can't, you know, if you don't know the population that was pulled from, you can't do a stratified risk benefit analysis of COVID vaccines. All you can know is, okay, you know, the, now I can see because there are some demographic characteristics associated with each VAERS entry, I think, you can say, oh, you know, compared to say the US population, um, we see that you know, young males are more likely to show myocarditis, pericarditis, for instance. But you can't say um, compared to the vaccinated population because we don't have that associated with VAERS. Well, first of all, I don't believe that there is no mechanism for estimating these things. I don't think any mechanism is going to be um, precise. But I think the point is, this is what a thesis like this is about, right? In the, you know, analysis of the Holocaust, you are faced with the fact that a huge fraction of the evidence of what happened is actually filtered through the Nazis um, who fully intended to hide the entire episode. So this is what a thesis should be able to do. How good is a question of, you know, the quality of the evidence to begin with and the quality of the researcher and their ability to sort out the Look, wheat from the chaff. I, I read this and I start from the data do exist. Every single person who got vaccinated had some record kept of them getting vaccinated. They exist as a human being, they have an age, they have a sex, they have a location, they have comorbidities, you know, they, they have underlying conditions, uh, and you know, all of that exists. So these data do exist. Yeah. That's what you want. And then you want to tag that to, you know, adverse events, yes or no. But I don't believe that it is going to be accessible to to Matthew here. Uh, the data that clearly do exist because everyone who's been vaccinated knows that their data were taken down and they now have it on a card somewhere. Like it's, it's known by, so it was known by someone at some point, but was that collected? And if it were imagined to be shared, and this is, this is the thing is that I think, I think it must have been given the kinds of research that is beginning to come out now that some people are claiming to like go in and look at like, oh, what we have is, um, you know, more reticence for boosters among the this population, among people aged this much. So that must mean that those data associated with every single person getting vaccinated exist somewhere. But I don't trust that the people who are managing, overseeing, sharing those data are actually um, inherently bound to scientific integrity. Yeah, I, I don't either. On the other hand, you know, I, I don't know what the various tools at his disposal might be, but developing mm -hmm. a questionnaire that you distributed to citizens that bypassed whatever reporting mechanism there were that, you know, sought to figure out were you or were you not vaccinated? Did you or did you not have an event? Was it or was not? That's obviously a possibility. That's not data science, right? Like that's, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just like, I'm looking at within the confines of this question. Like that's something an anthropologist or sociologist might do or a public health uh, person, but that's not what a data scientist does. Well, but I'm not, uh, first of all, I, 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 I'm not going to pretend that I know. But it seems to me that a data scientist might well say, okay, here's a systematically distorted data set. We know it is that. How do you correct it? Well, one way you might correct it is you might devise a questionnaire that allowed you to estimate the level of bias. And then apply a filter to your data. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I, I, I think that has the potential to, um, to correct some systematic bias in in such data sets. I don't know of that being a tool that is used by data scientists, but that would be interesting if it were. Yeah, I, I don't either. But given yeah. if data scientists can be stymied by pharma's systematic bias uh, on the relevant data set, then it seems to me like data scientists need to avail themselves of a calibrating For mechanism sure. like that. Yep. <clears throat> okay, next question. When did we start, Zach? How long have we been going? Uh, you for about 50 minutes. 50, 5 zero. Okay. The Real Anthony Fauci book by RFK Jr. has left me with a bleak view of the state of the world. How do we move forward and can trust be restored? Are you positive? Thank you both. Much love. And not are you positive of the answer that the person asking the question hasn't yet heard, but are you, are you, do you have a positive oh. outlook? <clears throat> All right. Um, let me start. I am simultaneously, first of all, I was truly, even though I have spent literally decades thinking about capture and the hazard that it poses to us, I was thrown by the real Anthony Fauci. That book 
And frankly, I don't know anybody who spent serious time with it who wasn't, right? I think even Robert Kennedy was thrown by writing it. Um, I know that Pierre Corey was thrown by it, even though he's been living the horror story up close and personal. Right. In any case, my point is, there's a difference between knowing how dangerous this stuff is and how it works in an abstract way and seeing how it has unfolded with actual lives on the line. The, especially the section of the book that deals with the um, prequel to COVID, which is HIV, mm. right? That you have the same players in many cases, you have the same playbook, right? Yep. And you can see the same uh, consequences. Strategies and tactics. Right. It's, it's a jarring presentation, yep. right? And to the extent that we have spot checked it, there's maybe one or two places that it might not be as cautious as it might be, but overwhelmingly, it is extremely well documented and stands up to fact checking, real fact checking. Yeah. Um, that said, I do find that in one way I'm more hopeful than I've been, even though I think things are far worse than they've been. Right? COVID was a absolutely catastrophic failure of so many essential elements of our system that that uh, is reason for fear, but. More people are awake than ever before. The number of people who have figured out that something about the system was lying to them, that it was indifferent to their potential death, um, to their suffering, to the loss of loved ones, that I think we have a better chance now of having the conversation that we five years ago couldn't have had. Right? What do you do now that your journalistic system and your academic system and your medical system have all failed you at this level? Right? What do you do? What do you do with the fact that we don't have, we have isolated journalists and we have no um, main, we have no high-powered journalistic publications which can be trusted. So um, I don't think you're wrong about the level of horror and the fact that it might cause you to feel hopeless. But the other thing is we got to hit bottom, right? And to the extent that people can convince themselves that their system still functions, they won't be motivated to change it to the extent that they know that their health was actually jeopardized by a system that lied through its teeth about what it knew. There is hope that they will change it. And uh, I would say that is a piece of good news that we haven't seen, uh, I don't think, in my lifetime. People have been in the dark and they are less so now. They are sadder but wiser. Yeah, I saw something. Some poll out of Canada suggested that the unvaccinated were angrier <laughs> than the vaccinated. It wasn't angrier. It was like angstier, less satisfied. <laughs> like Bullshit. <laughs> uh, well, no, of course we are. Uh, the, the unvaccinated are more likely to be the ones who are actually have been awake for longer and are saying, oh, my God, it continues. Oh, well, it continues. I, I agree, but I also have to say the lack the fact of not having to worry every time your heart rate goes up over what did I allow myself to be injected with um, does makes me less angsty than I would be I'm quite certain yeah but that's that's the wrong matched pairs you're comparing yourself to how you would be feeling you would be feeling with what you know if you were vaccinated not the population some of whom chose yeah, to do it and some of whom fair. chose not to um, <clears throat> this is a suggestion possible t-shirt suggestion Heather, we are living in a despotic clown world. Brett, it's even worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brett, do you have thoughts about making tax voluntary to remove incentive for corruption? Um, a voluntary tax will not work. Uh, remove incentive. I mean, that's, that's it. Yeah. yeah. No. We here's need better the thing. taxes. We need better politicians and better taxes and all you this. Need but you need a do voluntary taxation. You need a less baroque system. So I, um, who was the guy? Steve. Uh, I remember. Is it Lots of Steves Steve in the world. Forbes ran for president briefly on the platform of a 
flat tax in which you would file your taxes on a postcard. And I made the point at the time that file your taxes on a postcard is a good idea that a lot of skullduggery hides in the complexity, but there is no reason that that tax has to be flat, mm -hmm. right? It could be progressive and simple. Um, and so anyway, what I would say is the complex tax code is obviously a weapon of war. Mm -hmm. um, as you and I talked about on the podcast a couple weeks ago, we are not against um, paying taxes, even high taxes, if they are well used to make a civilization that works really well. But boy, does it suck to pay high taxes that are basically used to persecute you. Yeah. Um, to persecute you and do not Super show. high tax rate in, for instance, Portland, Oregon, where the uh, services are not really happening anymore, felt more like theft than taxation. Yeah, where they had decriminalized crime, for example. It's, yes, where the tagline for the city is the city, the city that, that works. The city that works, yeah. Um, yeah. W-O-R-X, no doubt. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, I don't see... It, look, any... A voluntary tax exists. It goes by the term charity. Right. The problem with charity... Or philanthropy is, if you've got a lot of money. Right. And the problem with it, as I tried to explain in my TED Talk a million years ago on the personal responsibility vortex is that a voluntary tax punishes the benevolent and rewards the ruthless. Mm -hmm. And therefore, a system based on such things evolves towards ruthlessness, right? It doesn't mean that charitableness is a bad characteristic. It's obviously a good one. Yep. But a system that is based on, you know, the good people cleaning up the mess of the bad people is a system that gets worse over time, and that's what we've got. It's a system that can't abide anonymity, right? You, like, it, you know, things like tithing which is charity, works because enforcement is possible because everyone knows who you are and can see what you're doing. And so a massive system like the U.S. population where anonymity is everywhere, it won't work. Yep. And I, I think your point about philanthropy is a good one. We have a voluntary tax system, mm -hmm. right? If you're yeah. wealthy enough, avoiding taxes is something you can do because the number of tools at your disposal is large. And the point is you can then choose to fund things as you would. That's a voluntary tax, right? And the point is, how good is that system? You know, it, it, it's terrible, right? What you want is a yeah. fair tax in which you get good value for the money that you put into your society. And we don't have that by far not. Yep. With the lipid nanoparticles attracting to like and the lipid lining of female eggs, what do you think the jab is doing to a woman's eggs and ovaries? I mean, I, I think with the, you know, with the research that may or may not have been in any way compelling that we talked about that was reported on in WAPO this week, um, <clears throat> you know, as it seems to have confirmed what was widespreadly understood to have been taking place, for many women, there were immediate effects. And... Hopefully, for almost all of them, it really was temporary, and uh, and those lipid nanoparticles decay over time and disappear, and no harm, no foul. I wouldn't bet a lot on that. Yeah, I would say, though, I think we get uh, lulled into a kind of self-sabotage on this. A, it's not just what women were reporting about their cycles, which was right. a very consistent message. It's also this, admittedly, it was one study in which the distribution in mice showed uh, accumulation in ovaries. Yep. And um, what I would say is, A, be very careful about over-interpreting the evidence based on named symptoms okay myocarditis is a symptom that we see because of the nature of the heart presumably the damage of myocarditis is happening all over the body but we don't even necessarily have names for the subclinical presentation when it's happening in your liver or it's happening in your brain 
Well, or, or and or it's happening in tissues with repair capacity, and therefore what you will see, the prediction is, as I'm sure you've made elsewhere or here many times before, the prediction therefore is that you will see an effect on lifespan. Yes. That there will be shortened lifespans among those who were exposed maximally to these ingredients. Yep. I think the proper interpretation of this, based on what we know, is... Uh, this is damaging to every tissue. The heart is a special tissue, which is why we are focused on the symptoms uh, of heart damage. Um, but that basically, yes, accelerated aging is the prediction, accelerating aging in every tissue. And lipids are a feature of every tissue. Yep. Um, so there's that. But the thing that I think we don't say is everything, I'll speak for myself, everything I know about the pharmacokinetics and the damage that's being done here, if I just feed that all into a mental model, um, what it says is any exposure is bad, but the damage is cumulative. The, you know, if you got one shot, don't get two, right? That's mm -hmm. the thing is you have a lot of control over how much damage and probably most of the people who got one with the lipid nanoparticles paid some price but not a major one. Um, but the point is, for God's sake, stop listening to them when they say safe and effective because they obviously don't mean either of those things. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're not going to get through all these questions. Let's do two more. Let's do them quickly, even though they're big ones. Um, I'm going to answer before I ask this first question. I don't yet have a take. So the question is, what's your take on the Nord Stream bombing? Love you guys. Uh, this being um, what happened in the Baltic, where seismologists are now saying, yeah, it wasn't earthquakes or landslides. It was, um, it was explosions, um, pipelines um, being blown up. I just don't This know. is affiliated with the, the leak that has been thoroughly documented? I think, I think the answer is... I'm not well enough versed in this. I've been... The yeah. The explosions rattled the Baltic Sea before unusual leaks were discovered on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines running underwater. That doesn't sound like... Well, I don't I don't know what you're talking about now. So I, I don't think know that's what I'm talking about. Um, I don't know enough about it to yeah. have a take. I just don't either. But I wanted to... I didn't want to appear to be ignoring it because we're afraid of it or something. I just don't yeah. think we know enough yet. Um, I would say... Maybe someone does, but I don't. Um, yeah. Leaks are bad. Uh, sabotage is possible. I, I don't know. Beyond the obvious, I don't know. What is the most intriguing unanswered question in biology? That's from Horseburger. I don't have an answer to this one either. Uh, I often don't have an answer to questions like this. What's the best? What's your favorite? Um, um, I bet you I do have an answer, but it's going to take me a little while searching the uh, the back, back, back burners. So I out. should have, instead of clicking done on that, I, should, I wish I knew how to go back in here. Yep, 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 yep. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see about forwarding that to next week and seeing if we have... Um, Yeah, I've got a bunch uh, of candidates where week. I think I've got the answer, so that seems like cheating. And then I've got one in which I really have nothing. But you want to you want to do it or not? Well, the one is um, how did how did the evolutionary process start? How did life begin? That's a genuinely difficult question. You and I have talked in our book and elsewhere about the fact that natural selection is an extension of selection, that adaptation is an extension of selection where you add heredity. But the question is, where did heredity come from in the first place? And that's mm -hmm. genuinely difficult. Um, so, you know, it'd be cool to know the answer to that one. I'm not compelled that we ever will. Mm -hmm. um, is speciation adaptive? I firmly believe that it is, but I don't think we yet have a picture of why um, 
why the biota looks the way it does because we've misunderstood speciation to be a byproduct of adaptation rather than an adaptive process in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So that's on the list. But I bet you there's something else that I yeah, just, I, have I feel to like there's probably something for. big. Although the way it's framed, you know, there's there are areas that I would really like to know a lot more about. Uh, but it's not a question per se. So you know, there's like research areas, like um, like how you know, given given that what we've got as our unit of heredity, as our as our as our ingredient of heredity is DNA and RNA, the packing and unpacking of it, which you know has experience. There, there is a lot more that we know about that than we did in the '90s when it was no one was interested in this at all. But I think there's still a ton hiding there that we don't know very much. Yep, and actually that might be related. And to this, that. and this, sorry, and this you know, epigenetics. You know, when when people for a while, I think still, but people love to say, well, that's epigenetics. Like, you know, epigenetics actually is going to be part of the unpacking and packing stuff. Like, how, how is it that you can have so few, so few genes in, say, you know, 100, no, now we think it's like 20,000? Yeah, like 20,000 in, in, in a human um, that does all of this. Uh, it's going to be about when they're exposed, who they're next to, how they get packed, and therefore are affecting the, you know, the translation of, of their new neighbor as opposed to their old neighbor. Uh, there's, just, there's a lot of intrigue there. Yeah, and actually, so I would say the problem is it isn't a question, but the I'm increasingly intolerant of the idea that explorer modes are controversial, right? How could they not exist? And the point really is, what is the diversity of explorer modes? How do they facilitate the evolution of adaptive states? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, epigenetic um, regulation of genes is going to be fundamental in that story. Yes. Right. So that's, that's really the thing is there's a, there's a, a missing layer of adaptive of Darwinism. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the question really is what is the content of that missing layer and how does it explain all of the things that we find ourselves um, groping for plausible sounding answers like, you know, how is it that mutations change the form of a creature, yeah. right? Yeah. All right. I think we're there. We and our sleepy cats. Yes. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to say before we sign off here? Um, no, I think, I think we're there. All right. Well, we'll be back next week. And until then, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. It's worse than you thought, but it's not worse than I thought.